Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 20th, 2015. We're going to be uh, listening to Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, lectures three and four on his Great Heresies, lectures, sermons. While I finish my prep for my two-hour interview on Issues Etc. 24. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually open up our Bible. You sound Biblical hermeneutics and exegesis, putting things back into context, using a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, properly distinguishing between law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles, and apostolettes, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're twisting God's Word and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. That's kind of the idea. Part of the way in which you learn discernment is by listening to good lectures and sermons where God's Word is rightly handled. And today we're going to be listening to two sermons by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from his Great Heresies Sermon Series. Uh, There's four sermons in the series, uh, and uh, today we're going to start off with his lecture on the Arian heresy, and then we will hear his uh, sermon after the uh, first break. We'll hear a sermon on the um, Christological heresies that that occurred within the church. So we'll go ahead and get right to it. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in his lecture on the Arian heresy. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John 1, 1 through 18. John, it has been said, is the most theological of all the Gospels, the Gospel that most opens up the inner meaning of the events of the gospel and that opens up the deity, the Godhood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. We trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Now John's great burden, burden of all the Gospels, is to express who Jesus Christ is. In Jesus, the early church, the disciples were confronted with a man who transcended greater than all their categories that they had. And the early church, after the apostles, after the Bible was written, struggled to give expression to precisely what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Because the Bible is not systematic. It's not a systematic theology book. The Bible contains many kinds of books. The one that perhaps in the New Testament comes nearest to systematic theology is the book of Romans. But what we have in the Gospels is, when you see this word, witness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. And the gospel writers are bearing witness. Now one reason that the Bible is not systematic theology is that God wants us to search the scriptures. To be always reading the Bible. And comparing scripture with scripture. Engaging our brains and thinking these things through. But when people come to a wrong answer and bring in something other than the Bible to interpret the Bible, we get heresy, false teaching. 
Now as we look in this short series at the, the great heresies, the greatest of them all is what's called Arianism. Today you'll find the, the Arian doctrine about Jesus is what's taught by the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Arianism was the great heresy. It arose in the early part of the 4th century. In 312 AD, the Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was what the Romans call a religio licita, that is a legal religion, meaning that Christians could worship in public. But also, Constantine professed conversion to Christianity himself. And as a result, Constantine came to see Christianity as having the power to unite an empire that was divided, a Roman Empire that was divided between warring groups in the East and the West. And he saw Christianity as having the power to bring the empire together. There was just one problem, which is that Christianity itself at the time was racked with a debate over the teaching of a man called Arius. Now, Arius was a fashionable clergyman sort of man. And today, he would definitely be on thought for the day. Definitely. He was the minister of a fashionable church in a smart suburb of the Egyptian city of Alexandria, right in the middle of the empire. He was a, an intellectual, a man that... According to reports, he was tall, he was thin, a very serious-looking man. A man with a wonderful voice, but also a man with a wonderful knack of communication. The trouble was that what he was teaching about Jesus was wrong. He came up against his bishop, Alexander. When Alexander heard that Arius was teaching that the Son of God was not God the Son, but was a created being, he said, of Jesus. There was a time when the Son of God did not exist. It was his great slogan, there was a time when he was not. He said in one of his writings that properly speaking, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son is not God, but the Son is the first created being, through whom all other things were made. And one of his favorite texts was in the book of Proverbs. And maybe if you have the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door, they've given you this text as well. I know when I was last visited by them, they opened, they said, look at this text in the Bible. So Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and uh, read a bit of chapter twelve of uh, chapter eight, verse twelve, and then go on to chapter eight, verse twenty-two. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge and discretion. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning. Before there was ever an earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, 
Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. And Arius said, look, the Jehovah's Witnesses today, they say, look, here is wisdom, and wisdom says that before God did all his works, I was brought forth, came into being. There was a time when it was not. And so he said, you see, this demonstrates, this proves, and he would point to other other passages, the and classic one that the that the witnesses and other people point out today is John chapter fourteen. John fourteen nine. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? You have seen me, have seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Because they don't, mean, they don't go on that one, they go instead and they say, look. Jesus says in verse 10, do you believe, not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And he said, look, you see this shows that the Son is... Less than the Father, and verse 28 of John 14, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And so he appealed to these things, and he said, look, you see, Jesus, yes, he is the first created being, and through him everything else was made that was made. Now, Alexander said, well, no, this is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that in the beginning was the word. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Well, then he, he cannot be one of the things that was made, can he? And so Alexander did his best to get Arius removed. But Arius brought in his allies, Alexander brought in his allies, and before they knew where they were, the, the whole church in the Eastern Roman Empire was in a ferment with one group of bishops against another group of bishops fighting over this question. Not, is Jesus God, really, but what does it mean to say that Jesus is God? Arius said, well, it's really, do you ever read or heard the Jehovah's Witness version of John 1, 1. You know that the JWs say not in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, but the Word was a God. 
And that was Arius's point. He's called God because of what he does, but he is not God in the same way. The Father is God. Alexander and company replied, no, he is God from everlasting to everlasting. There never was a time when he was not. And so it rumbled on until Constantine, the emperor, said, we need to settle this. We need unity in the church if the church is going to be a center for unity for the empire. He was, after all, a politician. And he called a council, called the Council of Nicaea. It met in a town in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor, called Nicaea, which happened to be nice and close to Constantinople and the imperial palace, so that the emperor could keep a good eye on, close eye on things, but also so that if actual fighting broke out, which was not unknown, the guard could be called out at a moment's notice. They sat down and they thrashed it out. The story is told of one bishop, Nicholas, a fellow who, through various traditions and stories, becomes our Santa Claus, but the real bishop Nicholas, St Nicholas of Lyra, at the council, became so infuriated with Arius, he punched him in the nose. It did come to blows. Now, these people gathered. They were bishops of a church that just ten years earlier had been outlawed. Just, just over ten years earlier had been outlawed. And the elder statesmen, many of them, they, were, they bore scars from torture. Some were missing eyes, some missing ears. They were a tough bunch. And though Constantine was the chairman, he wasn't able much to control the way things went. And eventually, in, at the end of the council, they condemned Arius and had him deposed and they took a vote and contrary to Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code who says it was a close run thing there were two votes for Arius remember Arius wasn't voting it was only bishops who voted there were two votes for Arius and over 200 against that's not a close run thing that's a pretty decisive result. The trouble was, of course, that no sooner was the council over than Arius was trying to get reinstated, and eventually he managed in, in 327 to get reinstated. The Orthodox bishops were exiled, those who didn't cave in and sign up to a, another creed, and for Many, many years, despite the fact that Arius died in 335 AD, arguments went on until 381 AD, when another council in Constantinople decided, voted that Nicaea was indeed right. And in the meantime, the imperial leadership went from anti-Arian to pro-Arian to anti-to-pro, as politicians are wont to do. 
it's been suggested that because Arius had this idea that the true God is one person who is absolute in authority and does not condescend to any, it appealed to absolute rulers. An absolute ruler says, well look, you have this one God who is absolute and who does not come down to earth from heaven, who does not lay aside his majesty but always holds on to his majesty, that this appeals to an absolute ruler who says, therefore I do not have to work as a servant to the people, but instead I can tell the people what to do. Theology forms politics, among other things. The sort of God you believe in can dictate the sort of politics that you support. And it may very well be that Arianism appealed to those who wanted a strong emperor, a strong imperial administration. But Arius also has two great planks that support his position. See, what he does is he goes, like all these false teachers, he goes to the Bible with certain presuppositions and then forces the Bible into his box. First of all, God is transcendent. Now, that's true. God is over all. God is greater than the creation. But there is another word that also applies to God, which is that God is imminent. That is, God is enthroned in the heavens, over all, in charge of everything. He is distinct from the universe. But at the same time, God is involved in the universe. God is involved in the creation. God works directly in creation. But Arius was influenced by the philosophy of Plato, which said that you have an unchanging heavenly sphere and a changeable creation, and the unchanging heavenly sphere cannot interact directly with the creation. God cannot come down to earth from heaven. He needs to have an intermediary, something between the two. And Islam is today noted for that doctrine that God is completely separate from his creation. God cannot come into the creation. Cannot interact directly. There must be something between the two. Also, he felt that incarnation, again, the Muslims believe this, you say, that incarnation must mean that God in his divine nature changes. And therefore, Arius said, and the Muslims say today, God cannot become man. It is impossible, just as a, a matter of course. And so you have this idea that God cannot interact with the world directly needs an intermediary. And so they run off to Proverbs 8, talking about wisdom, and say, well, Proverbs 8 is the text that informs how 
we is one of the great texts that informs how we think about Jesus. Now, of course, one of the great problems is that if you start with Proverbs 8, which is about wisdom and is a personification of a divine attribute, personified, of course, as a woman, then say, well, this is speaking about Jesus in every single way and cannot be in any way poetical, you have a problem because Jesus is a man. And so if you take, so Proverbs 8 has to be fitted into what the Gospels say, not the other way around. So Arius comes along with his box and and also says, well, Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, a son is younger than his father. A son cannot be the same age as his father. And therefore... On the basis of this analogy, Jesus must be created by the Father in some way. Whereas the great defender of orthodoxy, Athanasius, comes along. Athanasius says, well, no, we don't start with the analogy. Because the thing about analogy is if you, you take an analogy too far... It becomes ridiculous. The Lord is my shepherd, says the psalmist. I shall not be in want. Well, what does a shepherd do? Why does a shepherd keep the sheep? A shepherd keeps the sheep for the wool. But it would be absurd and ridiculous to go along and say, well, therefore there must be a way in which God keeps us for our wool. It makes no sense. It's an analogy, it's a metaphor. And so when Jesus is called the Son of God, what it is saying is not that Jesus' relationship to the Father in every single way resembles that of a human son and a human father, but instead that there is that in the relationship between the Father and the Son within the Holy Trinity that resembles a relationship between a human father and a son. In other words, what we have to do is take the whole Bible and not read into the Bible what we think will be there. I remember, you may have heard of the man, he was quite notorious a few years ago, his books still sell occasionally, Bishop Spong, the retired bishop of Newark, New Jersey in America. And Bishop Spong is notorious for writing books about what he doesn't believe, namely the Bible. And in one of them, he wanted to argue that the wedding at Cana was the wedding of Jesus to somebody. And he said this, he said, well, the only wedding I've ever been at in which I was present along with my best friends and my mother was my wedding. To which, of course, the always reply is this, Bishop Spong, you are a 20th century American not a first-century Palestinian Jew. So, taking your experience, your world, and reading it back into that world is illegitimate. It doesn't work. It's foolish. In the same way, we are not to take the Bible and read our experience back into it. 
but we are to allow the Bible to be the Bible. And so Athanasius pointed out that, among other things, Arius was assuming that monotheism, the doctrine there's only the teaching of the fact there's only one God, means that there's only a unipersonal God. He said, you're assuming this idea of an unchanging heavenly sphere, a changeable created order, and a God who cannot come into the world. But the question must be, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible use words? And what does the whole Bible say? See, it's very easy for people to proof text and take one sentence fragment. But actually, you can't do that. And certainly you cannot have some Bible texts defeat other Bible texts. And so he says this, well, look, you talk about Proverbs 8, but what about John chapter 20? What about John chapter 20 and reading from verse 24? This is after Christ's coming, meeting his disciples in the upper room. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came. The doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas asked and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And you see this clear text immediately says, Jesus is God, he is worshipped as Lord and God. And of course the word Lord stands for the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. Say that next time the witnesses come around. Look, he says, my Yahweh and my God. And therefore, Jesus is God, and yet he is not the Father. And so we have the, the creed that the, the Nicenes produce. This is a, a traditional English translation. And they produced a creed that said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of his Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again in glory, to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. The statement, of course, about the one substance is man trying to wrestle with this revelation that God is, as one man has put it, one what and three who's. Beyond that, our minds, our finite minds cannot go. And how, why is this important? Well, it's important because it comes down to this question. Does Jesus reveal God to us? Does Jesus come to us and show us what God is like? Or is Jesus different from God? Is the love that we see in the Lord Jesus, is the love of the cross, God giving himself to his people or not? Is God, put it this way, is it true when the Apostle John says God is love? And it is because Jesus is God. That God loves the world by giving himself. Now how different it is with an Aryan idea. Where the one unipersonal God takes a created being. No matter how great. And sends the created being to do his will. All the while the God is not affected by any of this. The God's love, if we may call it that, is so much less than the love of God revealed in Jesus. Whereas the, the created being in Arianism, they believe the Son is, is self-giving, but God is not. Now, considering this doctrine, this teaching, I was... Impressed and partly reading one of the books I was looking at, one criticism that's sometimes made of the teaching of substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus died in the place of sinners, is people say, well, it's divine child abuse, it's the father punishing the son. But you see, that doesn't, that's really an Aryan idea. Because a human father is separate from his son. In the way that, an Ar- that the Aryan God is separate from the Aryan Son. So that it's the giving of somebody completely separate. 
But the Bible speaks of the Father being one with the Son, united in the, the mystery of the Holy Trinity, so that it is God's own self-donation. It is not that the Son is put under pressure to do anything, but the Son willingly gives himself, whereas in the Arian scheme, the Son, as a created being, is under obligation to do whatever the Father tells him. Is Christ self-giving the self-giving of God or of a creature? And then, we tend to become what we worship. It's another biblical teaching. And if we worship a God who is this unmoved heavenly emperor, this leader, this ruler, who does not make himself a servant of any then it creates a leadership culture that says that leaders do not serve. They are served. That the supreme leader, the supreme ruler, does not make himself a servant of any, but makes all his servants. It gives us a, a cruel approach to leadership, an approach that says, I will sacrifice my underlings... To preserve myself, whereas the biblical revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that the Son of Man, the one who is in very nature God, took upon himself the nature of a servant, teaches us this, that he who is to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. But the one who girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet is not just the greatest created being that ever was, but true almighty God. And therefore, if God thus stoops down to serve us creatures, how we should serve and love one another. And so... This is not an, a mere academic exercise. This is something of vital importance. For we must know who God is when we come to him and worship him. And as we are transformed into his true image, the image of eternal love, eternal mercy. For, after all, if there was a time when God was a unique, Unitary, solitary personality. There could be no love. Because love needs somebody else. But since God is forever the three in one, then God is eternally love. And so we come and confess with the one God in three persons that indeed the Son, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, he has made him known. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. When we come back, we'll listen to lecture number two on the Christological Heresies by Pastor Charmley. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook 
Facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Quick break when we come back. Lecture number four. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible 
is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things Conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of Vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more information. That's higherthings.org. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think there's a such thing as heresy, which means there's also a thing called orthodoxy. And heresy is the opposite of orthodoxy, and heretics are not, well, Christians. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. It's a partnership, folks. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and, vis- and uh, click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount of money that you can choose four different ranks from. You have, we, have crew, we have a crew and we have different ranks. You choose your rank. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month, and it goes up from there. And uh, we're in the process of looking for the equivalent of 600 Powder Monkeys so that we can really kind of expand what we're doing with our website, bring some other people on board, our crew, so that we can help serve the body of Christ even more. So if you don't already support Fighting for the Faith, 
Go to our website and join our crew today. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We honestly, truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, here is lecture number four in the Great Heresies series uh, that uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley recently did. And this is on the Christological heresies that the church has faced. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the epistle to the Hebrews, reading from chapter 4 and verse 14 through to chapter 5 and verse 10. Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10. The writer, of course, is arguing that the Hebrew Christians oppressed as they are on every side, cannot turn back, cannot forget what they have learned, but rather should go forward since what we have in Christ is so much better than what the Jews had before Christ came. So Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 10. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this he is required as for the people so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who... In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Now we have come to the the fourth and last in this short series of studies on what are called the great heresies. And the reason we look at these, of course, is that they are things that come up over and over again. Things that 
There are folk who may knock on your door, or there are books to be found in certain Christian bookshops, not the one here, of course, but certain other Christian bookshops that teach these things and yet claim to be Christian. And when we look at false teaching, one thing we have to remember is the tendency of people to swing like a pendulum from one extreme to another. And remember that very often the Bible's teaching is not at one extreme or the other, but is in the middle, it's rather like walking along a a knife edge ridge in the mountains. And if you go off one side, you fall into one area, you go the other way, you fall off into another one. And one of the things that's perhaps difficult for us to understand today, given what we're surrounded by, particularly for evangelicals to understand, is in the early church the biggest problem was accepting Jesus as fully human. Today, there's a lot of people who want to talk about a Jesus who is just human, but in the early church there were many who felt that humanity, the humanity of Christ, was difficult to accept. But we do see in evangelicalism sometimes there is a a tendency to to so emphasise the deity of Christ as to forget that he is also fully man. I remember reading a book by a fairly popular evangelical, conservative evangelical writer who seemed very, very uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus was a man. And yet, of course, he was a man and he is a man. We have to affirm both Jesus is fully man and fully God together. And tonight we're looking at two heresies, one of which is called Apollinarianism. And uh, there is a, a Baptist minister in Clapham in London who preaches exactly what Apollinarius preached. So this is not something that is uh, academic at all. And the other one is called Nestorianism, and they took place a, quite some way apart. But uh, Apollinarius, the man who flourished around about 360 AD, and he was the Bishop of Laodicea. Well, we know of Laodicea from the book of Revelation. The Laodiceans were criticised by the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation for their lukewarmness, that they were neither one thing nor the other. So Revelation 3, reading from verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Laodicea, as a city, was still very much in 360 what it had been back in the first century. It was a very rich place. They said, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. It was a rich city. It was a city where a man like Apollinarius had a very small flock to deal with and spent a lot of his time writing. He wrote poetry. He translated the Psalms into Latin and Greek verse. He wrote commentaries on various books of the Bible. And the question that he had to grapple with was this. What does the incarnation mean? Granted that the Lord Jesus Christ is God with us, Emmanuel, that he is true almighty God and has come into this world. Well, how does it work? Now, the reality is that we have to say, well, we don't know how it works. Because we cannot fully plumb the depths of God. We can say what it is, but we cannot say how it happens. And Apollinarius was one of these men who wants to be able to give an account, and so he came up with this idea. And he started out, as you may, may be aware, there's a little bit of dispute as to whether man is made up of two parts or three parts, biblically. Whether man is body and soul, or body, soul and spirit. And Apollinarius started out saying, well, in Jesus what happens is that the, the divine nature takes the place of the soul. Meaning that he is God, basically, in a body. But there's nothing more to the humanity of Christ, Apollinarius said, than the body. And he appealed to the fact that the Bible speaks in John's Gospel, the Bible speaks of Christ becoming flesh, of Christ taking flesh in the days of his flesh here in Hebrews 5, 7. But rather than understanding that the Bible uses the word flesh to mean humanity, he thought it just meant the body. Of course, there is one major text that is a com that completely demolishes that idea, and it is found in John's Gospel and chapter 1. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not just took on flesh, but became flesh. But it the word flesh means not simply the body, but humanity. The word became a man. Did not simply take a human body. And so, 
Of course, if we think of, of Apollinaris's position, he later developed it to say, well, no man is body, soul, and spirit. By the spirit, he meant the, the higher capacity, the intellectual capacity, the mind, we would probably say. But again, you have a Jesus who is not really fully human. How could it be said of one who is God and nothing but God as to his spirit, as to his person, that he was tempted in every way like as we are? How could he sympathize with our weaknesses if he was not man as well as God? God in a suit, God in a flesh suit, as it were, is not a man. It's not able to sympathize. And it's worse than this, of course, because what then happens is that it affects how you understand salvation. And there are people out there who understand salvation like this. They say, well, what happens in salvation is that God creates an entirely new spiritual man and implants it inside of us, while the old man, the old nature, slowly withers away and dies. Well, of course, that's open to a very obvious objection, which is this. That it means that rather than the old man, rather than being born again, what you have is simply a, a new, a whole new created being who never needs to be saved, and the old man is never saved. But what did the Lord Jesus Christ say when he spoke to Nicodemus? He did not say to him, well, you need to have a new spiritual being created inside of you. He said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. The one who is born again, who is recreated, is nevertheless the one who existed before. And again, as to Jesus' humanity, Paul said, right to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That he is indeed a man, now Apollinarius said, it is not Right to call Jesus a man. And the Apostle Paul says it is right and good to call Jesus a man. And to affirm also that he is God with us. That he is indeed the one who is God over all. So again Paul writing to the Romans in Chapter 9 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking of Israel, who says, Of whom are the fathers? And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Jesus Christ, who is the eternally blessed God, is also a man. Both are true. 
And he is fully man. And this is vital because if he is not fully man, then he cannot really connect us. The mediator between God and man needs to be both. He needs to be able to lay a hand on us on the one hand and on God on the other and to join God and man in his person. And he does because he is fully God and fully man. How can this be? Well... We do not actually understand human personality anyway. So how can we even begin to understand the God-man? But of course, even once Apollinarius had been dealt with some years later, in 428 AD, there was appointed to Constantinople a man called Nestorius. Now, Nestorius was a monk from Antioch. He was a man who was known as a preacher. But he, he was appointed to the imperial see. Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, where the Roman emperor lived. And it was like a lot of these big cities. You think of London, it was cosmopolitan and there were tensions in the city and so they thought this man Nestorius would help to settle things down as it turned out he was an incredibly difficult man to work with about his first sermon he addressed the emperor and said if you can if you throw all the heretics out of the city then we'll be able to work together and of course the question there was well what do you mean by the heretics and also really if you want to talk about Throwing people out of the city are not going to help to build bridges or to bring people to the truth. And one of his issues was that there was a phrase that was used in the Eastern Church to talk about the Virgin Mary, which was theotokos. It means, it's a Greek word, it means the one who gave birth to God. Now, some of Nestorius's concerns about it were completely justified. He was concerned that people were using this phrase as a way of giving a sort of worship to Mary. Honouring her as though she were effectively like a mother goddess. But at the same time, the reason that people started using the phrase was that there was a debate as to when did Jesus become God. And, of course, the answer is he was conceived as God. And so the one Mary gave birth to was God. Our God, as Mr. Wesley puts it, contracted to a span. He's thinking of the size of an infant. Incomprehensibly made man. And so Mary is the one who gave birth to the child who is God. And when you understand that it's talking about Jesus, then there is nothing to object to. But of course, Nestorius was one of these men who liked to fight, a man who was a bit of a pedant. We, we've all met them. I remember some years ago listening to a Christian author being interviewed, and he said he, he had a major problem with Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood. And he said, the problem is this. It speaks, it says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Well, said this writer, 
the divine nature didn't die. To which, of course, the answer is, but nobody is saying that it did. Certainly not Mr. Wesley. And given that Mr. Wesley is a poet, then why the objection? But you see that this fellow said, we, if you speak of Jesus as God, then you're looking at only what he did according to divine nature. And this is what Nestorius did. He spoke of Jesus in such a way as he said, well, some things he did, he did with the divine nature, and some things he did with his human nature only. And he spoke in such a way as to give the impression that Jesus was, in fact, two persons, two people, a man and God, who cooperated with each other perfectly, who were one in the sense of working together. Now, almost certainly he didn't believe that. There was a lot of politics involved in his eventual getting dismissed from, getting dismissed from his position. But he spoke in such a way as to give this impression that Jesus was two persons. And he said, well, you can't speak, you can't speak of God being born. Because the divine nature wasn't born. The divine nature wasn't in any way born of Mary, he said. Well, nobody was saying it was. Rather, what's being said is that Jesus is one person. And you can say of the one person, when he acts, the person acts. Not a nature, but a person. And because the person is both God and man... Then you may speak of God dying on the cross, because the one who died on the cross is God. And so it is that the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, can say, Acts 20.28, where are we? Acts 20.28, he says, Therefore... Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now the objection at that point could be raised. Well, God doesn't have blood. The div God is not a man. God is spirit. Yes, but of course the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is also man. As man, he has blood. He is one person who is God and man. Therefore, the blood of Jesus Christ is the blood of God. Not that there is anything different about his blood from anybody else's blood. I and mean, you analyze the blood of Christ, you could find blood type, etc. Made up of all the usual parts that human blood is made up of. And yet it's the blood of God. Because it's the blood of one who is God. And it's perfectly fine to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Using words that belong to either of his natures. Because he is one person. And Nestorius so insisted on this, division, this distinction of the two natures. That he appeared to divide them into two different persons. And yet, of course, John can say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
other word, the, the divine nature was not turned into a human nature, and yet he became flesh by taking a human nature so that we should have no qualms whatsoever singing, and can it be, and singing about that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, or singing at Christmas time about our God contracted to a spam, about God laid in the manger. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is one person. And he is God and man together. It's a marvellous thing, you see, that Paul can say in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And that it is not merely that you have the divine Christ cooperating with the man Jesus, but you have a union of the two natures in the one person. Because if, if you take the view, the Nestorian position about the two natures cooperating together, you find that God and man can never really meet. God and man are never really united in Christ. And that reduces the gospel effectively to nagging, to moral exhortation. One writer puts it like this. He says the cruelty implicit in reducing the gospel to nagging, do this, do that, do the other thing, is the despair it produces insensitivity to the profound bondage of human beings to sin is characteristic of the Nestorian teaching about Christ because it says that you have this moral cooperation between the man and the divine nature and that means according to Nestorian teaching that we Christians are only united to God as long as we're cooperating with him But the, the fact, of course, is that every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That our sins do not uh, instantly sever us from Christ. There is not this constant fear. But there is rather this trust in God. Now, fear paralyzes. Confidence, trust sets us free. So that we are able to live as children of God. So we are able to walk in that path. So we emphasize against both the Apollinarians and the Nestorians, first of all, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is fully human. We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who was in every way tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. One who has every part of a human nature, that there is a man 
upon the throne, a man in the glory. We come to God by a mediator who is fully man and fully God. And we have a mediator, a saviour, who is one person. For God and man forever united in the person of Jesus Christ. No possibility of a break. The incarnation is a real incarnation. It is one person. Jesus is one person. He does not have schizophrenia. He is one person with two natures. And because he himself joins God and man. So he is the one who is our way to the Father. So he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. So it is that the only begotten Son is able to reveal God in all, all his fullness to man. So he is the greatest revelation that is possible of God to man because he is God in man and man in God who saves us not just by his example of cooperation but by his work upon the cross and by his mediation, his eternal mediation. We have such a high priest. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>